to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Was that an excellent video? Anyway... Um, <laughs> It's good to be here. It's nice to be in a cool room. My house was burning hot on fire this whole weekend. I couldn't wait to get to church this morning. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it was in 1985. And, and I don't know how many of you guys are sort of old school hip-hop heads, but I was born, raised, nurtured in hip-hop and it was a group that I love called Eric B. and Rock Kim. Anybody remember that group? Big Daddy Kane. I was actually like in the middle of my college career at Oregon State. And it was at that time where you wore the big, thick gold chains. And those were the coolest gold chains I had ever seen in my entire life. Took me back to the days when Daryl Dawkins, who played with the Philadelphia 76ers, and the old ABA, NBA, where they used to wear jewelry during warm-ups. And, I, and that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because I was in middle school when I'd see that. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm middle of my college career, and we're playing Texas El Paso, and a bunch of us uh, guys decided before the game we would cross over the, uh, the border because you could buy chi- uh, cheap, thick, go chains. And so... <laughs> Bunch of us crossed over the border. We went down there. We were seeing thick gold chains for like 20 and 30 bucks. And they swore that those gold chains were real. (laughs) So we had our little basketball per diem. Every time we went on a road trip, the program would give us some money. And so we would save some of our money just to kind of survive and get us through the month. But this was a weekend that we were going to buy some gold chains. And not only buy these gold chains, but warm up in these gold chains. And so here we are in Mexico. We just crossed over the border. I bought a $30, I was getting ready to buy a $30 gold chain that I was not convinced was real. But the person that worked inside the jewelry store, he got me good. I didn't know any better. I was 19 years old, but literally he took a lighter and he says, let me prove to you that this is real. And he took the gold chain and he lit the lighter and he put it under the gold chain for about five seconds. And then he pulled it back and he says, if this wasn't real, this chain would melt. And I was like, makes sense to me. Here's $25. So I bought the gold chain, put it on my neck, went to, uh, 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 got on the team bus. We ended up at Texas El Paso. I put on my uniform and I put on my nice thick gold chain because I was going to warm up like Daryl Dawkins. Little did I know, halfway into my warm-ups, my warm-ups started to turn green. <laughs> and I'm wondering why my warm-ups are starting to turn green. And one of my buddies says, the reason your warm-up is turning green is because your necklace is turning green. I was watching a show this week called Married at First Sight. It's where two unsuspecting people, literally who've never met, know nothing about each other, meet at the altar and decide to get married for the first time. It's on this new channel called FYI TV. 
kind of crazy to me. And so my wife and I are sitting there, and we're watching this thing, and we're like, man, this is, this is nuts. Who would walk down the aisle and marry someone that they've never seen and they don't know? And so they get married, and then they, the coming episodes, which I don't, I, I'm waiting next week. But my wife and I are sitting there watching this thing, and we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, they could make it. Oh, no, no, no. They, they, they are not going to make it. And then you see the previews of next week episodes, and you realize that the people you thought were going to make it don't seem like they're going to make it. And the people you said, oh, no way, they're going to make it, seem like they're going to make it. As you can tell, I watch a lot of TV because one of my favorite is Catfish in a weird, twisted, morbid kind of way. And Catfish is about what? It's about... Somebody that falls in love with someone on the internet, but that person on the internet that engages that person creates a whole nother identity that's false. And the whole series is about this person, about these two people who literally go to this person who falls in love with this other person online that they've never met for two or three years, been stringing them along, and then finally at the end of the show, they show them that they've been catfished. And so as I think about the gold chain, as I think about getting married um, at, at first sight, as I think about catfish, I realize that we live in a world that isn't what it seems. We live in a world that isn't what it seems. And that's exactly what we're getting ready to discover when we jump into the book of Isaiah because God's people are, by all intents and purposes, on point spiritually. They come to church, they give, they give their offerings. They seem like they're doing all the spiritual stuff that a Christian or a person of faith would do, and yet God is highly, deeply offended at their worship that doesn't produce a certain thing that God always demands out of his people if, if that worship is to be authentic. And so this morning... I hope you look at, because as I started working through this passage my own self, I realized that much of my Christianity needs to be challenged and stretched. And this is what the book of Isaiah does. And so if you would with me, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 10 through 26. Isaiah chapter 1, 10 through 26. It says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offering of rams and the fat of the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of the bulls and lambs and goats. When you come And appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon, festivals, and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
and wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead for the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She is once, she once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Yet silver has become dross. Your choice wine diluted with water. Your rulers are, are rebels and companies of thieves. They all love bribes and they chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's uh, ease does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, oh, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. And I will turn away, uh, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges in the, in the days of old, your counselors as the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Jesus, we thank you for your work in our life. We thank you even for these hard words. God, we pray that you would speak to us. Uh, you would move in us. You would quicken in us um, areas of our life that is dishonoring to you. And may we experience your grace this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what's going on. Isaiah steps onto the scene in 740 B.C. One of his contemporaries is Amos. Ironically, Amos happens to be from the southern kingdom, exactly where Isaiah is from. Now, at this time, Israel was broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. At this point, they experienced prosperity in their own nation that was unparalleled uh, than before. And the reason they had massed so much wealth was that the northern kingdom had gone up to Syria and they had sacked Syria. And most importantly, they sacked um, Damascus, which is the capital city of Syria. And Syria at that time, because the, the, the global powers of, of the Assyrian nation, the Egyptians, and the Babylonian empires were at their weakest point. And so at this point, Syria was running everything. And, and God's people, the northern kingdom, goes up there, sacks the country, takes Damascus, grabs all the resources, and starts exporting them back to their northern kingdom. And for the first time, Israel has amassed wealth. Well, one commentary said this. It says, when the northern kingdom sneezed, the southern kingdom caught a cold. And this is exactly what Isaiah is doing because Isaiah is, 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 is prophesying to the southern kingdom. Now, at that time, the southern kingdom was ruled by a really good king. And that king was a guy named Uzziah. And Uzziah was pretty good. I mean, he was able to stabilize the country. The internal um, uh, resources were pretty good. He had peace with the neighboring states. He was just a pretty good king. And then he caught leprosy. 
And when he caught leprosy, he was put into a leper colony and was left to, di- to die. But, but what su- who succeeded uh, Uzziah was Jotham. And Jotham was his son. And Jotham was weak. He was sorry. He was, he was a vacillator, right? He, he was a pushover. And from that point on, the country kind of caved in on itself. But the one most important piece is, both in the northern kingdom and also in the southern kingdom, was the fact that they started making money. They started to have resources. And don't get it wrong. Don't get it twisted. I want you to understand, there's nothing wrong with having money. What's wrong is when money has you. And so they have money, and for the first time, people that used to live in the farm started moving to the city. It was sort of like what we experience today in our own state through gentrification, right? People from the suburbs are now going from suburban to urban, right? And as a result of going suburban to urban, people started getting displaced and dispossessed of their land, of their resources, the income gap, the health gap, the educational gap. All the gaps that mark for a healthy, sustainable life had began to wane, had began to widen. Now, this wasn't, this isn't something that just happens in America. This goes on from century after century after century after century. And God rises up, raises up a prophet named Isaiah who comes at uh, 740 B.C. and begins to prophesy for what most historians say about 50 to 60 years. And God is ticked off. He's ticked off at three things. And these are the three things that I want to unpack this morning. He's mad about worship because worship has to have a certain quality to it, and it doesn't. So this morning, as I unpack this passage, there's three things I want you to walk away with. Number one, what is authentic worship? What does authentic real worship look like? Number two, how does that kind of worship get distorted? How does this worship get distorted? And number three, how do we get it right. How do we get that worship back on track? So those are the three things I want you to walk away here. What is authentic worship? Two, what is, uh, how, how does it get distorted? And three, how do we get it right? Or how do we get that worship back on track? So number one, what is authentic worship? Because this is what God is banging uh, Israel about, what authentic worship looks like. And it's interesting, if you look at 10 through 14, God is just bringing, breathing down judgment on Israel. And he's talking about their worship, about their new moons and their meaningless offerings that are detestables and their Sabbath and their convocations. And he says, when you lift your hands, the, your hands are meaningless to me. And yet at the same time, in verse 17, he talks about learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the followers, and plead the case of the widow. And it's interesting that any time you start reading uh, the old prophets, many times when the Bible talks about worship, oftentimes it connects justice to that worship. That's why if you read in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 58, Amos 5, Micah 6, you hear God constantly saying, I hate and despise your festival. Why? Because it is not followed up by justice. So for God, authentic, authentic worship is an extension of, of, of justice. 
And oftentimes, when you go into a church, and I have had, you know, I've been in ministry a long time, and I've been in a lot of different streams. And oftentimes, when you start talking to people about what authentic worship looks like, many times they'll think authentic worship is if it's loud enough. Right? If the music's banging and people are raising their hands and people are dancing and running the aisles and they'll say, that's authentic worship because the spirit moved. And then you go to some places and they think authentic worship is that it needs to be tamed and quiet and contemplative. And if it's quiet and it's subdued and there's no noise and no, you know, like very calm and chill, somehow that's authentic worship. Some people think Contemporary worship is authentic worship. And others say traditional worship is authentic worship. Some people think gospel music is authentic worship. Some people think Celtic worship is authentic worship. And yet, all of those things are a form of worship, and they're implied in scriptures. But only in the arena of justice does the scripture explicitly say that authentic worship is deeply, deeply, deeply connected to justice? Why? Because all these other things like contemplative worship, Celtic worship, gospel worship, spirited worship, quiet, tame worship are all things done inside the assembly of God. But justice is the one thing that is done outside the assembly of God in the streets. And so justice trumps everything else because it is the proper form in God's eyes of worship because it's an extension of what's going on in the heart. The only time God bangs away about worship inside the assembly of the church is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in James chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. In 1 Corinthians 11, which is interesting, uh, Paul talks about these affluent Christians that would get to the, 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 the gatherings early and they would partake of the communion and drink the wine. And by the time the poor got there at the end of the day, all of it was gone. And then when you get to James chapter 2, verse 2 through 5, where it talks about what worship looks like internally, it says, if a person with a gold ring and in fine clothes comes to you in your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, have a seat here. While to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? What's going on here? I think there's a certain understanding of worship that is assumed in these two texts that you can't disconnect worship, what we say, from what we do, justice. In fact, the extension and the relationship between worship and justice is important because worship has three components to it. The first thing is is that you have to delight in God, that God has to be the center and circumference of everything that you do, right? There's no other affection. There's nothing else that can beat God out in your heart. And we grow to that, that sanctification, us delighting in God, that nothing has our affections like him. And so that first component of worship is delighting in him, seeing him, savoring him, rejoicing in him, allowing him to capture our affections in a way that no resources, no career, no money, no spouse can. But the other part of worship is, is to declare him. Because you've experienced and delighted in him, it has to be shared in order for it to be genuine worship. You ever been to a really good movie and saw it by yourself? I don't know about you. I don't like going to movies by myself. 
because I like to talk to somebody afterwards or during the movie. But if I, even if I see a good movie by myself, the movie is incomplete unless I, it's expressed. In other words, if I go watch a film by myself, I got to go out and say to somebody, man, this is an amazing movie. You got to go see it. Why? Because the completion of the movie is when the movie's expressed. And so to delight in God is worship, but to uh, declare God is an extension of that worship. But the last and final piece of that worship isn't just delighting in God and, and declaring God and his worth, but it's also demonstrating God's worth. And that's where worship and justice are deeply interconnected. Because when Jesus came, the Bible constantly kept saying that he came in word and in deed. Right? What's going on here must, must, must filter out to what's going on out there. So God is angry with Isaiah. I mean, angry uh, with Israel. And he's speaking through Isaiah. Because authentic worship is when we are able to combine true, authentic, biblical worship that, that, that is coupled with strong biblical justice. Now, justice is key to worship. But justice is not, a, is, is not a, an issue of ethics. It's an issue of theology. In other words, when you, go, when you talk about justice, justice is not a to-do list to keep the church busy. Justice is very, you know, it's at the very center heart of who God is. Before we talk about what God does, we must talk about who God is. And at the center of God's being is this whole ideal that he's just. And so, so part of justice is an extension of this whole ideal of how we worship and how we bring shalom, and how we care for others, and how we get outside of ourselves and do stuff that isn't narcissistic and self-serving, but altruistic and is transforming those around us. And so God is upset with Israel because they're coming to church. They're paying their tithes. They're, they're burning their their sacrifices. And God says, I'm upset because it doesn't lead to anything. You see, when you caught a hold of God, it leads to something. Um, my, my youngest daughter um, was a Barney fanatic. Loved Barney. Talked about Barney. Had the Barney doll had parties at her house, sleepovers, and had all her friends talking about Barney. And she never took a, she never took a class on Barney. She just, she just loved Barney. Barney had caught the affections of her heart. She had never read a book on Barney. She had never taken evangelism class on Barney. Barney was just something that, that you know, pulsated. It, it, it touched her from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. And so every part of her life was about Barney. In other words, that declaration, that delight that she had watching Barney flowed out of this extension of sharing Barney with everybody. I'm not asking you to get fanatical about Barney. But what I am saying is this, is that what you do on Sunday must be congruent and consistent with what's happening throughout the week.
And so authentic worship has to be deeply connected to justice. And if it isn't, God is, is broken, is grieved, is upset and angered by it. How does this worship get distorted? Look with me in verse 10. It says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instructions of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. Do you see the imbalance here? They were given burnt offerings. I mean, that was the first offering you, you did when you went to the temple. And those burnt offerings were for the remission of sin. That was sort of a, a, a way of atonement, getting things right, even if it was just for that year. I mean, Jesus became the ultimate atonement. But at this point, this is what you did. You brought an unblemished calf or goat, and you sacrificed that thing. And that was your burnt offering to God to get at one with him, right, to be reconciled with him. And it's interesting, he said, I had enough of that. You would think they're coming to church asking for forgiveness of their sins would have been enough. And yet God said, I don't want any more of that. Why? Well, I think it's pretty simple. They came to deal with personal, individual sin, and yet they had no regard for social, historical sin. And he uses this story of Sodom, who had died centuries ago. And he uses the story of Sodom because oftentimes when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the moral failure that God judged this nation. And yet when you read in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, it says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, They did not help the poor and needy. And yet at the same time, in Jude chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment punishment of eternal life. And this is interesting when you think about Sodom because oftentimes when you hear any sermon preached, it's about the moral perversion and the moral failure of Sodom. And yet we rarely, if ever, hear anything about the fact that they showed no concern. They were fat, they were overfed, and they had no concern for the needy and the poor. And so their failure wasn't just moral, it was social. And I don't know anybody in this country has been able to get this thing right. That's the beauty of the gospel because the gospel knows how to put these things together. Personal repentance and yet social repentance. We repent of lying and cheating and all that stuff, but we don't repent of racism and systemic oppression that keeps one and advantages one group over another group. And yet God is telling him, God is telling Israel through Isaiah that the kind of repentance I want puts both those two things together. And if you don't know how to put those two things together, then your worship is meaningless. We bought into an evangelical Christianity that has siloed Jesus, siloed it down to my own personal relationship with Jesus. And as long as I'm not lusting and lying and cheating and doing that stuff, that's fine. And yet... We live in the most wealthiest, privileged country that was taken 
was taken. By Christians. <laughs> That's what the manifest, des- manifest destiny was about. That's what the trail of tears was about. In fact, someone once said that when the Puritans came here to America, they came here with a spiritual ideal, but somehow as they crossed the Atlantic, it moved from a spiritual to a cultural ideal. And yet this God who, who's angry, he thunders down judgment on Israel is the same God that is equally as angry with the kind of Christianity that does not put personal and social concern together. Were they sacrificing? Absolutely. Were they burning Animals, absolutely. Were they trying to get atonement? Absolutely. And God said, I had enough because what you're doing on Sunday is asking for personal repentance, but you have not repented socially. I come to redeem those who have been oppressed. Oppression is systems, and systems are created by people who have no concern for other people as long as they're advantaged. And God says, I come to breathe down judgment. So how do we get this worship right? Love it here. Verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they shall be white as snow, though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 24. Therefore the Lord... The Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. And I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as as in the days of old, your rulers at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Interesting, he says, come. And if you step back, you think to yourself, that's what Israel was doing. They were coming constantly. But there's a way of coming that honors God, and there's a way of coming that dishonors him. And he says, come, let us settle the matter. What's the matter? Well, this bifurcation, right, of not being able to put worship and, and justice together. He says, I'm going to settle this matter. How? He says in verse 24, I will vent my wrath on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. I will restore your leaders as in days of old. That's how. There would be a day when God would send his son and he would vent his wrath and he would turn his hand against someone and he will restore leaders through one leader and that leader is Jesus Christ. 
God will one day make all rights wrong. And he will settle the matter. The beauty of the gospel is, is that in spite of God judging Israel, the last half of the book of Isaiah is about salvation and grace. And this is what God is in the business of doing. He's not in the business of shaming. He's not even in the business of guilting. But guilting can be good if that guilt leads you to, rep- leads you to brokenness and that brokenness leads you to repentance. And that's the beauty of the gospel is, is that we can confront the history of our own nation, the history of our own privilege, the history of our own oppression. And yet there is repentance and brokenness that frees us up to serve, to do justice, to worship in a way that's authentic and God-honoring to him, in a way that the world knows not of. Because when we talk about guilt, all it does in the world is lead to shame. And the gospel is not in the business of shaming. It's in the business of healing and mobilizing shalom into the city. It's about bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It's about a people who have been freed up in their conscience to go do good and not taking a defensive or angry, angry posture. And to serve the quartet of the vulnerable, which is the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the oppressed. The way we get it right is we come to Christ who God had vented his wrath on and turned his hand against and restored to provide a way out where we can put personal and social repentance together and use it as a way that brings true redemption in our city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the words that have been thundered through Isaiah. We thank you that you are a God that loves us in spite of our own stuff. None of us get it right. None of us live worship and justice in a way that really honors you. But you did. And we can lean in to that kind of example. And receive the power of the Spirit to bring a kind of worship that is an extension of what we're doing every day in the streets. That we're going and we're telling it on the mountain. We're loving people in a way that is genuine and sincere. It's an extension of your work in our life. We thank you that only worship gives us the fuel to do justice. And it allows us, as we do justice, to not turn our justice into mean-spirited browbeating, but an ability to love and serve other people in a way that, that melts their heart by your spirit. And so today, as we come to the communion table, we eat of the bread, we drink of the wine, and we celebrate that you, you've done it. You've reconciled. You've put it together. Now you call us to go forth and live in that. And today, as we come to the table, help us live into that. Help us be able to see worship and justice in a way that that ministers to our soul and becomes a blessing that we, as we partake of the bread, may we be broken like you were broken for us. May we be broken for our city. May we drink the blood 
and know that it forgives us of all sin. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.